Welcome to the Bloomberg Markets Podcast. I'm Paul Sweeney, alongside my co-host, Matt Miller. Every business day, we bring you interviews from CEOs, market pros, and Bloomberg experts, along with essential market-moving news. Find the Bloomberg Markets Podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts and at Bloomberg.com slash podcast. Again, Jobs Day uh, came in well below expectations. Is this something we need to be concerned about? Is this something the Fed really needs to be concerned about as they think about beginning tapering perhaps next month? Let's check in with Lindsay Piegas. She's a chief economist for Stiefel Financial, joining us on the phone from Minneapolis. Uh, Lindsay, thanks so much for joining us here. Again, a, another big miss here, second straight month here. Do we have a theme here? Do we have something to worry about? Well, we do know that the, the data in the labor market has been increasingly volatile. And that's not to say that this wasn't expected in the aftermath of a crisis. It will take time for balance to be restored to the marketplace. Obviously, this morning's number very disappointing on the heels of last numbers, last month's number, excuse me, last month's number coming in under expectations. But remember, this follows the July number, which was well over a million surging past expectations. So when we smooth this out, we're still talking about adding about half a million jobs each month, and we have been since March. So there still is a very clear underlying positive trend in hiring, but there's now more volatility month to month. Yeah, well, Lindsay, we knew this recovery was going to happen in fits and starts, right? But September was, in theory, supposed to be a start month because kids were back at school, those extra unemployment benefits rolled off. If that didn't happen in September, how can we have any confidence that that effect is indeed going to happen? Well, there are a number of variables that should have helped pull workers into the labor market. As you mentioned, kids are going back to school. The unemployment benefits uh, ended September 6th. We also have a, a growing confidence in the vaccine initiative, which is well underway. But there's still variables pushing in the opposite direction. We still see working families struggling with daycare or elder care issues. We still see uh, uh, millions of Americans reporting that they're concerned about the virus spreading or contracting the virus. So it's not a flip the switch scenario. This will take time, even in the case of benefits. Benefits this time around were arguably so overly generous, plus the moratorium on rents or evictions, plus the additional checks landing in people's mailboxes. So for many Americans, they've actually been able to accumulate a sizable amount of wealth which won't carry them indefinitely, but it could carry them for several months, even now after the expiration of those enhanced unemployment benefits. So it's more likely that we see a slow trickle into the labor market as opposed to an open the floodgates and everyone jumps back in. So one of the things that jumped out at me is this, the as we looked at the participation rate was um, uh, women, women leaving the job market. Um, how concerning is that to you? And is it, is it, primarily a function of we're in that kind of that weird period kids going back to school but maybe they're not going back to school and that kind of thing no this is a very big concern we have seen women uh, under an extreme amount of pressure from an employment standpoint one in four women reporting that they've either been forced to downshift their career or leave the labor force entirely mm. as a result of the virus and the associated uh, policies so this essentially translates into millions of women leaving the labor force undoing uh, years, if not decades, in terms of enticing women and developing women in the labor market. So if we're not able to reestablish a trend of pulling workers, and in particular uh, women, female workers, back into the labor market, this has significant long-run implications. 
Yeah, well, and it's not just women leaving the labor force as well. We talk a lot about how the pandemic accelerated, you know, early retirement and a lot of those people of a certain age may not be returning ever to the labor force. They may have just called it quits right then and there. So when you think about some of those dynamics, does the Fed need to redefine what maximum employment is when it's thinking about achieving its dual mandate? It's a good question, and it's something that the Fed certainly has been considering when they talk about the dynamic metrics of the labor market, not only adjusting the threshold, but also looking at the different cohorts of the labor market that may have been disproportionately impacted, making sure that most groups or or the majority of groups have been included in the recovery. And if not, the Fed has said that they're willing to err on the side of caution. Now, that being said, we have seen a dramatic improvement in the unemployment rate across the board. And this does seem to be enough for the Fed to move forward, at least with the first step of removing accommodative policy. So at least from the chairman's perspective, as he told us at the latest FOMC meeting, that box in terms of inflation and the labor market, both of those have been checked. All right, let's switch a little bit off the labor front and just take a look at supply chain issues. I'm wondering, you know, we're hearing from more and more companies and when that the supply chain is a ongoing and significant issue on their operations. Is it enough to materially impact, say, your GDP forecast for the remainder of this year, maybe going into next year? How are you trying to capture um, that issue? Well, producers at this point are still putting forth a very great effort to try to ramp up output to meet a still heightened level of demand in the marketplace. But even if they are able to find workers, which, as we just talked about, is still a a big challenge with a sizable labor supply gap, bottlenecks, uh, disruptions in the international supply chain are continuing to restrict that flow of goods out to the marketplace. And I do think it's important to remember that we're very much a global, uh, globally integrated production line. If we're a U.S. producer trying to make goods for our domestic base, well, if there's a particular component or part that comes from Sri Lanka or Vietnam, well, with much of the developing world one, two, or three steps behind us in terms of controlling the virus and reestablishing normalcy, this is going to have significant negative implications for U.S. producers. And as a result, absolutely, we have to look at the supply constraints and the capacity restraints when we're talking about our overall growth <laughs> forecast. Yeah. Between that and uh, still a, a very tepid labor market or very moderate labor market, I do think growth uh, is going to remain positive, but slow to a three to four percent range in the back half of the year. Well, let's talk about the consumer's role within that growth, because the American consumer is what powers this economy. And as we talk about these supply chain issues resulting in higher input costs for companies, companies by and large have been able to pass those on through just higher prices for their customers. With the kind of wage growth we are seeing xing out inflation, How long are consumers going to be able to be tolerant of those price increases? It's a good question, and I would imagine that we have at least enough cushion for the next several months. Again, against the backdrop of not only rising wages, additional bonuses, incentive packages that have been offered by employers, but also the $1.7 trillion in accumulated wealth that consumers have as a, a backstop to these rising prices. But it's certainly not an indefinite fix. And if, in fact, transitory price pressures do prove to be longer lasting as we look out to the end of the year and into 2022, at some point, consumers are going to be priced out of the market and they're going to have to pull back on demand for both goods and services. 
Lindsay, one of the issues right now as we think about how the, you know, the uh, business or economic response to this pandemic is one of the decisions for companies and for employees is, do I come back to work? Uh, and how many days do I come back to work? Because the argument can certainly be made that the U.S. economy was pretty darn efficient and productive during the lockdown and during these past 18 months. As an economist, looking at the macro picture, do you have an opinion about what's best for the U.S. economy or what could contribute the most to the U.S. economy? Kind of a hybrid model, a back-to-work model like the old days or, or just strictly working from home? Well, I think all of the above. I don't think there's a one-size-fits-all answer for individuals or sectors of the economy. For some sectors, it simply does not make sense for workers to be at home. They can't efficiently do their job. And so when the economy eventually returns to normalcy, we would expect those sectors to welcome back those employees full-time. But for some, it does make sense to have the flexibility of a hybrid model. Perhaps they're losing production or, or uh, productivity time in commute times. Many individuals drive 45 minutes or an hour to the office, and that's mm-hmm. valuable time that they could have otherwise been using to execute activities at their full-time position. So it's really going to depend on the individual. It's going to depend on the business, and what fits one business may not be best for the next. Uh, Lindsay, just quickly, after this kind of disappointing headline number, at least on the payrolls report, you've seen some lawmakers, including Nancy Pelosi, putting out statements saying this just underscores the need for further fiscal stimulus and investment in the longer term in the economy here in the United States. How are you thinking about the fiscal equation and the ultimate size of those packages out in the in the works on Capitol Hill? Well, I think anytime there's unevenness in the data or uncertainty in the outlook, uh, officials in Washington will use that as an opportunity to push fiscal initiatives in the name of economic growth and job creation. But we do have to be careful as we're talking about further stimulus dollars being spent, looking in hindsight at the Enhanced Unemployment Benefits Program, we do know that in some cases, this actually created an incentive for workers to remain outside of the labor market by essentially compensating them equal to or even above what they would otherwise earn in the private sector. So we do have to reach that delicate balance, providing a safety net, but certainly not encouraging individuals to remain outside of of a productive capacity position. Lindsay, thank you so much for joining us Uh, yet again. We always appreciate getting your thoughts and insight. Lindsay Piegza, Chief Economist for Stiefel Financial. This is Bloomberg. All right, let's talk with a big Penn State alum, Dan Ives, as the Penn State Nittany Lions head to Iowa to play number three (laughs) Iowa this weekend. Dan, thanks so much for joining us here. Dan Ives is a Managing Director, Equity Research for Wedbush. Dan, let's talk Tesla here. Elon, moving... I guess the headquarters to Austin, Texas, joining a long list of companies moving to Texas and Florida and things like that. Should I care about that or should I just focus on when that plant in Austin is going to be built, when the plant in Berlin is going to be ready to go to crank out some more cars? What's the important thing here? Yeah, it's a great question. I I think right now it's about capacity build out. Berlin is going to be key in Europe. Austin is going to be the hub and part of why they're moving the headquarters there. It's important because this is going to give them about anywhere from five to 700 FIP improvement potentially just from a margin perspective, given the robotic nature and how scalable Austin is going to be. The headquarter move, obviously taxes as well as just lower cost of living. This is a no-brainer strategic move for Musk and Tesla, a right move at the right time. 
Well, it's great to have, in theory, the production capacity, Dan, but also yesterday, Elon Musk was talking about some of the supply side challenges Tesla is facing. It's not just even the chip shortage, but ships, you know, all the ips. Uh, How much downside risk is there on the production side due to some of those supply chain challenges? Yeah, and that's a near-term headwind, of course, Tesla and and the rest of the automotive and tech supply chains dealing with. But they've been able to navigate it a lot better than other automakers. I think you saw that with the 3Q numbers. It's still about a 40,000-unit headwind. But as we get into 22, it starts to moderate. And as this green tidal wave starts to take hold, I believe Tesla, you know, leads this charge here. But you're going to see GM, Ford, and others benefit. But no doubt, supply chain, a near-term hit. But you look through that, and I think capacity, we're starting to see bright lights as we go into 2022. So as this business continues to evolve, Dan, and we get some of the major uh, automakers on a global scale committing, you know, obviously significant resources to this, how do you think Tesla will position itself? Is it trying to be, hey, we're the best, we're the first, we're the best, we're the most unique, or are they going to say we're going to be the biggest? How do you think they're going to position themselves? Yeah, well, a lot of it's brand. It's a unique brand they yep. build globally, and that's part of the cachet that Tesla's built. But ultimately, it comes down to battery technology. And the innovation coming out of Tesla, we think battery technology costs could be reduced by 50% over the next two to three years. That's enabling them to go after the masses, forty, fifty thousand $50,000 cars. And that's really where you start to see demand significantly ramp. And that's how Tesla goes to 900,000 units potentially this year to what I view as 2 million units when we look out in the next two years. Wow. Okay. So how is Tesla going to be able to withstand competition from the likes of GM and others who are legacy automakers who have had, you know, much greater scale who are getting into the EV space? Yeah. And we don't view this as a zero-sum game. I think GM, there's a massive renaissance of growth happening in Detroit, which came back from the analyst day. I know that's a re-rating stock as they benefit and go after this green tidal wave. But, but today, it's 2% of autos are EVs in the U.S. When that goes to 10% by 2025, it's going to be massive beneficiaries, GM, Ford, Tesla, and others, as part of this you know, move to EVs, which we view as the biggest transformation to the auto industry since 1950s. So I continue to view it as it's not just Tesla, but Tesla is going to be a disproportionate beneficiary, I think, even as we're seeing this quarter. So, Dan, I did see your Bloomberg television uh, hit from, I guess, yesterday or something. It looked like you were broadcasting from the back of a car. <laughs> I saw What's that, too. What's the story there? Yeah, that was from the GM analyst day. And, okay. You know, and, and specifically, you know, they, they released some of these Hummer EVs and Super Cruise technology, which, you know, Paul, I mean, it, it, it's really what they're coming out with is something that's special. And I think we're going to look back. And look at this as really a pivotal turnaround for GM. We have an $85 stock price, so I think this could be one that moves a lot higher from here. All right, talk to us a little bit more. Let's just broaden it out a little bit, uh, Dan, just in terms of tech here. You know, I think we've seen rotations in and out of tech, in and out of cyclicals. Um, How do you think about your space? I mean, you follow the tech space across the board. What's your call here as you talk to maybe some of your clients and they're saying, you know, in a rising interest rate environment, I might not want to be as overweight tech. Maybe I'll go buy some more energy or banks. How do you kind of respond to that? Yeah, I mean, look, a lot of hand-holding in the last few weeks. But ultimately, 
a 10, 20 bit move in the tenure doesn't change our decade long bull thesis intact, which we expect to go well in 2022. It's, it's a basically a fourth industrial revolution playing out in terms of the digital transformation, two trillion of spending. We want to continue to play names like Apple on 5G, Microsoft on cloud, cybersecurity, which we kind of view as a golden age, names like Cy- CyberArk, Zscaler, and others. So to us, it's a green light to own tech. Despite some of the white knuckles, we have a 16,000 target for NASDAQ year-end. And I think this is one we see a 10% move into year-end, especially on 3 two earnings that we expect to be robust. Yeah. Well, let's talk about those earnings, Dan, because it seems every single quarter when we come in, expectations are impossibly high for some of these big tech names. And often they are actually able to exceed them, but you don't necessarily see the share reward because valuations are so rich already. So why would earnings be a catalyst this time around? Yeah, it's a great point. I think ultimately the street has has sold really post-earnings. I think this is going to be a little different because as we go, not just from 3Q, but into Q4, and the street's massively underestimating the growth stories that we're seeing across tax. And as much as we could talk about ratings potentially being compressed because of what's happened in the 10-year, I think Street's underestimating growth across tax by anywhere from 10 to 15% mm. over the next year. And that's why I view this as a seminal earnings season to really you know, turn the tide there from a sentiment perspective. Can they do that? I mean, I, you know, in, in terms of we were just talking a little bit earlier, Kaylee asked about the supply chain. I'm, I'm just a, an observer who thinks that that's going to be a bigger issue this earnings season than I think maybe the market's discounting. And one of the areas where it may be more pronounced is technology. Do you think the street's taking in for your tech names, you know, kind of what we're seeing across the board in terms of su- su- supply chain issues? Yeah, I think the street, as to some extent, is almost overly discounted for the supply chain. I mean, we're starting to see throughout our Asia check that it's actually moderating going into early next year. So we're going to continue to have that headwind this quarter. Streets looking past that. And that's the important thing. You'll have those headwinds. But as you look into 2022, it starts to moderate. And it's going to be a massive lift in terms of seeing, in terms of overall growth for tech. That's why I view this as not time to throw in the white towel, but actually double down tech. So, Dan, to these supply chain issues, I had a little bit of an episode about a month and a half ago. I was on the TV set and I was trying to put my Apple Watch back on and I (laughs) dropped it on its face and it just totally shattered to the point where you could see the chips inside. And everybody said, wait, wait, wait for the new one to come out if you're going to buy a new one. But I had no faith I would get one on my wrist in the near term. And I'm glad I just bought a replacement that day because Apple, you know, those watches, even though the event was last month, aren't coming out until a week from now. As Apple moves forward, how do they need to diversify their supply chain so they don't risk those kind of delays again? Yeah, I mean, they're really married to the Asia supply chain, and that's not really going to change to some extent. They'll diversify a bit in terms of more factories. But but right now, Apple's handled the supply chain a lot better than anyone had anticipated. And you'll continue to have some delays in some products. When we look at this iPhone 13, and what we're seeing, I mean, this continues to really be smooth, you know, smooth sailing. You have some shortages into year end and especially on, on Apple Watch and some other areas like Mac. But overall, Barks went a lot worse in the bite because Cook and Cupertino continue to, to navigate this and almost have Teflon like 
ability, uh, unlike a lot of their competitors. Dan, last question here on, on Apple um, services. Is that still a good growth driver for this name? Oh, I think it's massive. I mean, services is a big part of the re-rating that we've seen. If I go back, I mean, two, three hundred billion is what the street was assigning. Today, it's, we think it's worth one point five trillion. And despite Epic and some of the regulatory worries, I think that's something that continues to be mid-teen growth. I think that's another upside surprise this quarter. It's a big part of the re-rating in the stock and how we get to a three trillion dollar valuation going into two thousand twenty-two. Hey, Dan, thanks so much for joining us. We always love chatting with you because we can go many different directions. Lots of great names you cover. The stories are working, certainly. Uh, we always appreciate getting your perspective. Dan Ives, Managing Director, Equity Research for Wedbush Securities. Bill Smead, Chief Investment Officer, Smead Capital Management. Bill, thanks so much for joining us here. Again, we got a jobs number today, uh, disappointing, um, yet we still have, and combined with that, is a lot of inflation out there that some folks are concerned that it may not be the transitory type. And one of the areas is right out there in energy. So, Bill, give us a thoughts on the energy space. Where are you guys there? Where do you think there are opportunities? Or has it already been priced in? Well, uh, thanks for having us. And it, it is not even vaguely close to being priced in. <laughs> uh, you, you've got uh, a teacup of market capitalization in the energy sector and oil specifically, oil and gas, uh, 3% of the S&P. So you're going to have a 3% position in the S&P be far and away the best performing sector because energy is just as important as it was five years ago and 10 years ago. And like Warren Buffett likes to say, the people that think that we'll make a fast transition away from carbon fuels mm -hmm. and the people that think we'll never transition are both crazy. So, so the thing to understand is whether it's making electricity out of natural gas and, and combustion or whether it's moving cars around, you just you have way more demand coming from a huge pop, positive demographic population shift, right? All of a sudden, mm -hmm. 90 million millennials want to own a home. They're buying in the suburbs. Yeah. They both have to have a car. You know, just a whole bunch of things are going on at the same time. And, and, and the Arab Spring torpedoed oil and gas production in the United States of America. And the uh, body politic is trying to shame the industry into avoid drilling and expanding that supply. Hence, you get Yeah, so Bill... Given all of those kind of idiosyncratic to energy kind of factors, do you have to treat energy differently than you would treat the basket of value, cyclical, reflationary stocks, whatever you want to call them? Well, yeah, they're, they're kind of in their own world now. Uh, because, well, I'll just give you one example. Uh, our largest position is Continental Resources. Continental Resources in 2018, when oil was $70 a barrel, peaked out at a price of $68 a share. Price of oil is 80 right now, and we, we don't even know where it's going to go. And the stock's trading at 52. So we believe that that spread or our margin of safety is the fact that so many people have flooded out of any participation in oil and gas. Uh, for example, on an ESG basis, that, that there is a margin of safety there. That, that It's the kind of thing that Peter Lynch loved. He liked to own a stock that went way up, and nobody loved it after it went way up. <laughs> Bill, just broadly speaking here, you know, starting, you know, more than a year ago, we had this nice rotation into the cyclical names of this 
market, in, including energy, including banks. Um, and, and that's worked so well for so long. And there's been fits and starts in that is, you know, um, there's been bouts of rotating back into growth. But um, in a rising interest rate environment, how do you feel about that trade? Well, it, it, uh, I, I always remind people that after a terrible bear market, and there was a terrible bear market in value investing for about seven years. When a, when a, a, a deep bear market ends, the first year you get an explosion. You know, so in bottom of the stock market in 82, the first year was a huge move up. The bottom of the stock market in 09 was a huge move up the first year. And then you settle into a light correction and bull moves for another seven or eight years. So, so again, we're in the very early stages of I – mean, stop and think about it. There, there's so many investors out there that are momentum investors, and the place to find momentum at the moment is a place that it's almost impossible for hmm. them to get into because it's not that big, right? It's 3% of the S&P, and what they do own, the, the big tech stuff, the fangs and all that is like – all added together is like 40% of the S&P. So you could you could see a fire hose trying to put water in a teacup for a while. I want to ask you about the home builders as well. You were talking about all the millennials going out there looking to get some more space, moving out to the suburbs, buying a house, something I am unfortunately not in a position to do at the moment. But how do you play that from an equity perspective? Boy, they have uh, discounted those stocks as if they're the same cyclical companies that got caught in the 05, 06 stupidity. They, they used to be land developers that put houses on the land to get them sold, right? That used to be their business. And secondly, it used to be a fragmented industry where, where for example, in 1994, the largest home builder, D.R. Horton, they built 1% of the homes in the United States. And, and this year, they'll build 9%. And that's just one of the top 10 publicly traded home builders. So it used to be fragmented. And, and what, what you're going to see happen here, they, we're talking about stocks trading at seven times earnings that have a 10 to 15 percent 10-year growth possibility that's pretty easy to do in that there's 90 million millennials and there was only 65 million Gen Xers. So they satisfy an economic need, which is one of our eight criteria. They will build the single-family residences that are needed to, to meet what the population wants. And then of course, my age group, the baby boomers, the older boomers are staying in their house and are going to stay in their house way longer than prior generations, A, because they're healthier other than COVID than prior generations, and B, because obviously it's not quite as exciting to move into a communal setup in a post-COVID right. world. All right, Bill, thanks so much for joining us. We always love getting your perspective, the perspective of a uh, veteran value investor, certainly having uh, some good opportunities right here and good performance more to the point the value folks are. Bill Smead, Chief Investment Officer, Smead Capital Management. He's been a value investor for decades, uh, calling out now some of the uh, energy stocks as well as the bank stocks that are working for him. We'll have more coming up. This is Bloomberg. Good morning. Bring in Omar Aguilar. He is the Chief Investment Officer and Head of Investments for Charles Schwab Asset Management. They've got a new study out. It's fascinating. They look at how, uh, you know, kind of behavioral science and, and how that views or how that skews or impacts uh, investing. Uh, so let's bring in Omar. Interesting study here, Omar. Talk to us about your B5 Barometer 2021. What is that survey and, and what are you looking for? What are you asking? 
Yes, thank you, and good morning. Um, I uh, we have this is the third year we conduct this uh, uh, research, and it has been incredibly helpful for us in serving our clients as we partner with the IWI and Ceruli to um, get this survey out to advisors to understand, you know, what are the behavioral tendencies that they see on their clients as they see information. And what is interesting, obviously, about this year is that now we have data of the pre-pandemic behavioral biases that clients observe during the pandemic of last year and now in this process of obviously trying to get out of the pandemic. Um, the research shows that, you know, there are two uh, areas where advisors and clients continue to observe natural behavioral biases, which is, you know, one is called recency bias, which is the uh, tendency of people to just look at the most recent information for making decisions. And the other one is confirmation bias. And confirmation bias is that where you uh, try to find information that confirms your own views. Uh, and that is obviously very typical, especially because the news flows continues to be incredibly fluid and it's, and it's changing. It changed mm -hmm. in 2019 to what the information that the investors and clients wanted to see in 2020. And even you know, with today's you know, labor market report, you know, people are just trying to see how they can process that information. So this study is very helpful in understanding how clients make decisions. And we clearly um, you know, have you know, learned a lot from it. Yeah, you know, Paul, I had the pleasure of speaking with Omar at the Bloomberg Invest Global Conference earlier That's this right. week, and, and we focused a lot on the retail traders. So, Omar, I'm wondering, you know, we, you and I had a conversation about retail traders, how the meme stock mania seems to be over, but it was still a thing where people were getting their investment ideas from Reddit and from social media. How are, do those kind of fads and kind of that FOMO aspect play in here? What do you see in the survey? It's uh, it is an interesting um, you know results. We we for the first time this year we added a few questions related to precisely social media and the impact of social media and investment decision process. And what we what we observe is you know two things. One is you're, you're totally right as we discussed, Kaylee. There is a lot of new investors coming into the markets as a result of these you know, FOMO setting and this, you know, fear of missing out, the access and the ability to get into the different programs and different providers, it is now easier than it was, you know, even a couple of years ago. So that process, you know, it is actually helpful. It's, it, we, we do welcome, you know, more participants in the market. That's very good. And what the study of these B5 parameters showed us is that advisors are doing a great job in working with their clients to understand whether those, um, investments are actually good for them, whether it's a meme stocks, whether it's SPAC, whether it's an NFT, even digital currencies, you know, advisors are working with their clients to understand whether that's a suitable component. And getting that level of education and advice is probably what we learned the most about these B5 barometer. You know, it's, it's good for people to be invested in the market. We continue to see interest in this. And I don't think, Kaylee, this is going to, you know, disappear. You know, there will be, you know, always, you know, another story that people will get interested in. So Omar, is there a general consensus from your data about how maybe be, you know investor behavior has changed in pre and post pandemic, not that we're necessarily fully out of this pandemic, but we can see certainly light at the end of the tunnel. But in terms of risk taking, are people more or less risk tolerant? 
Well, it it has changed, you know, quite significantly, and it's it's almost like a you know perfect textbook example of how this works. Because in the world of, of behavioral finance, you know, biases get divided into what is called emotional reaction and what is called cognitive, you know, biases. Cognitive being a little more rational when you're trying to convince yourself about the decision you're about to make, and emotional would tends to be more, you know, when you overreact or react without necessarily giving it two two more thoughts. It is interesting to see because. You know, during 2020, as you might expect, the majority of the biases ended up being, you know, heavily emotional, with, with loss aversion being, you know, one of the main drivers for a lot of decisions that we saw. And again, combined with recency bias, as I said, because people use information on the most recent data to try to make decisions. But it's, it was clearly dominated by, by the loss aversion and protection and uncertainty. As we became, you know, we got the vaccines out, we started the rotation in the market, we started to just see this big economic recovery, then the cognitive biases started to turn uh, on, and those were tend to be more of overconfidence. They tend to be more about you know, trying to understand, you know, how can they get their understanding that the Fed will be there, the central banks will be there, the stimulus will be there. Yep. So they, they, those became, became more prevalent overall. And now we're in this, you know, wall of worry, as we say, where, right. <laughs> you know, we're starting to see this balance. Yep. Omar, really fascinating discussion there. Omar Aguilar, uh, Chief Investment Officer, Head of Investments for Charles Schwab Asset Management, looking at the biases um, that investors have, um, you know, across the board. And, uh, you know, folks presumably were impacted clearly by the pandemic. And we had a lot of those retail investors, as you were mentioning, Kaylee, came into the market. We saw that early on in the pandemic when people were looking for something to do uh, <laughs> and they were trading meme stocks. And we saw some crazy uh, trading uh, patterns there. Just phenomenal. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Markets Podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews at Apple Podcasts or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Matt Miller. I'm on Twitter at MattMiller1973. And I'm Paul Sweeney. I'm on Twitter at PT Sweeney. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide at Bloomberg Radio.